30 years ago, I survived a light aircraft crash and sitting beside the wreckage of that plane, miraculously physically unhurt, I was forced to face my mortality and life for me was never the same again. You're listening to Embracing Your Mortality, a podcast series exploring life, death and consciousness with me, author Sue Brain. Since my brush with death, I've written a number of books about mortality and consciousness because I'm so fascinated by both subjects. And I also run death cafes online and speak out about what it means for all of us to find ways to accept our mortality so we can live more consciously for a better world. As part of my journey, I've interviewed a host of fascinating and inspiring guests for my blog, many of whom you're going to meet through this podcast. He was the most extraordinary man. I think if I hadn't have met him, I think I wouldn't have truly believed in true love. Some work around death and dying. How do we get people to think about this and to talk about the fact that one day they will pop off? Others study consciousness and whatever comes next. I got to the hospital, then I went into a coma. I was in a coma for about 12 hours, and that's when I had the near-death experience. I was in intensive care. And then there are those who are learning how grief and loss are just part of the human condition. I was desperate when she died. I just froze up two nights after she died. She came back to me. I hope these conversations will soothe you as well as inspire you to embrace your mortality so you too can live more consciously for a better world. Jamie Cato is a life-challenging personal coach and business coach who believes that every one of us is a wise guru in charge of a mental patient. His workshops are designed to shake up our life and confront the perceptions of who we think we are. One participant describes him as foul-mouthed, passionate, present, witty, and a musical wizard. So we're in for a treat. I do remember as a child, realising I had consciousness. I remember the moment, I can still remember exactly where I was standing in West Hampstead on the high street, and just suddenly realised that I had consciousness. Realised that I was thinking thoughts and had an idea of self. And I was... Like I just remember the adrenaline coursing through my body and thinking to myself, is everyone else like I am, like thinking of things and being a, a consciousness? I wasn't thinking the word consciousness, but I remember being really almost like half incredibly exhilarated and half terrified in a way, just of like, I'm me. It took me till just a matter of weeks ago, I had an, a really extraordinary breakthrough, which is almost like the exact same moment you've just asked me about when I was seven years old or whatever. There's this meditation guy who's who's based in Oxford called Rupert Spira or Spira. And he's not saying anything that you haven't heard 75 times from every other thing, but just something about the way he said it. There was a woman who was like insecure about her relationship. And his answer to her was, you're right to be insecure about your relationship. That's not fantasy, that's intuition. Not that your relationship is necessarily going to end next week, but if you're basing your feeling of stability and security on a relationship, your natural intuition should be telling, warning you against that. Relationships are insecure things. Humans change their mind, they die, we're all going to have to let go of each other. Same with money, same with status, same with everything. He goes, I suggest you start deciding what in your life you can depend on. He doesn't suggest God or, but in his other videos, he talks about the stable thing is one sense of self. 
that one's presence and just feeling of being you never changes. And I agree, you know, when I teach certain meditations, I say to people, connect to that sense of being you that you've always had since you were a little child. It's the same kind of feeling of just being me. All sensation and all thoughts and all feelings come and go within that stable constant. Do you think that it is the relationship with the soul you're talking about or relationship with spirit or maybe both? Yeah, I, I guess you could call it lots of things. And I, I, I tend to, in the teaching that I do, stay away from words like that because I think it like excludes everyday people. And I really want to bring the peacefulness and the intimacy, not just to people who are interested in self-development, spirit, soul, yoga, like those people are going to be catered for by 20 million other teachers who are better than me. The people I'm more interested in are the people who are ripe for intimacy and ripe for what we're talking about, for just feeling oneself, allowing oneself to feel one's edgy feelings and not be always comfort addicted and think that every edgy feeling must be wrong and I need to get rid of it. You know, just being curious about the edge, curious about, well, a bit of anxiety there. All right. Hello. Curious about self-care without it having to be, I'm on a path, you know, so like I look at it like there's this circle of people who are already into it. They come to my stuff, but they're not exactly my people. Then there's like a donut shape around that of people who are really ripe for it, have all the intelligence for it, totally ready for it, and not in rejection of it, but are in rejection of either religious or new age terminology. Obviously, there's going to be people that are just living from the egoic self. You know, they don't see anything other than them as an individual personality and their survival. Totally get that. I'm not judging or against that. And then there's other people who are lucky enough that they have enough finances or resources or, or live in a place where bombs aren't dropping, that they have the luxury that they get to explore beyond just survival. I feel that I'm going to have a much better chance of reaching more and more and more people when I remove the lingo. In my experience, most of us don't know how to listen to ourselves. We're so outward looking we've been told that you know the answers are out there somebody's going to fix us or do things so simple i mean it literally is how you do it is just do it i mean there's a great brilliant 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 book by thich nhat han the lovely vietnamese monk who was nominated for the nobel peace prize by martin luther king in the 60s can't get much better than that he has all these lovely little very short how-to books how to eat how to fight he's got one called how to sit one of the most amazing you know when I read it it like it was one of those things that really like was like a transmission it wasn't just like oh that's interesting page one was like a thunderbolt to my head it just said one page it just has one sentence on it it just says the first thing you have to do is stop whatever else you're doing we're living in a society that does not say stop it just goes just keep fighting We're given totally the wrong rule book from the beginning. Don't look vulnerable. Don't stop. Be busy. Achieve. It's also yang and patriarchal. And the yin, which is supposed to be the more feminine thing, not that we want to do the gender thing too much, but the yin, which is the not doing, which is the stopping and being impacted and listening and being curious and being empty and allowing oneself to be moved. Like when we dance, we are moved by the beat. That's why so many people are like, I couldn't live without my dancing. Yes, because it's the only time in your life that you're yin. It's the only time in your life that you relax and let it do you. Like when you laugh, when you cry, when you smile, when you dance, you're yin. It's happening to you. You don't laugh on purpose. That's where the treasure of life is. But our whole culture is brainwashing everybody to be more yang and do it, control it, make it how you want, strategize how you want it, vision it, hammer the nails, do the thing, do, 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 busy, busy, busy. And it's just, 
totally out of whack. So, you know, my whole job as an activist and as a, you know, spiritual master is uh, to bring <laughs> the yin back into balance, not to get rid of the yang, but to bring the listening and the stopping and the curiosity. It only takes a moment of turning towards that stuff on the inside. It rushes to meet you. It's not like it's a big, difficult thing. Yeah. It wants to be felt. Why do you think we're so terrified of the yinness? I'm talking about females as well as males, because in my experience, a lot of females are very aggressive in how they manage life. Very simple, because we live totally identified with the ego of me, me, me. I've got to protect myself. I've got to be the best. Everyone's got to think that I'm nice. Everyone's got to think this about me. No one can think that about me. Because for most people, it's everything, that point of view. One of its main agendas is to protect from all risk risk of exposure, risk of looking stupid, risk of danger, risk of anything that's going to hold me back being the most powerful, enjoyable me, me, me. The yang promises more of that safety than the yin, is as, is as simply as I can mm. say. When you're in yang, you're in control. I'll do it like this. I'll get to there. It's all linear. I'm in control. I'm making it how I want it. I'm affecting reality. I'm doing. The ego loves that because it's limiting all mm. risk and feels like it's in control. The yin side, which is so vital for us to stop, listen, be impacted, is letting go of control and it's being moved. You talk a lot about being authentic, coming into the authentic self. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about what that means to you. It means that because of this egoic situation, I don't like the word ego because it sounds like I'm trying to get rid of the ego or that ego is a bad thing. We've got to change our whole framing around ego. You, uh, to come to planet Earth and be an individual, you have to have an ego. It's an essential part of it. It's only the enemy when it takes over and becomes everything. But authentically, it's like because of that terror of the ego to ever be exposed, to ever look stupid, to ever be emotionally exiled, to ever look ugly, to ever get laughed at or shamed, because of its whole agenda, we wear masks that very much limit showing our whole self because we don't want to look vulnerable. We might get rejected as people think we don't know what's going on or that we're weak. We don't want to look needy because that's ugly and it's uncool in enlightened circles to, to not look after all your stuff all the time. We don't want to look greedy or fake or conniving or poor or sometimes sexy. We don't want to look this. We don't want to look that. Everyone's got their different list of things they mustn't be seen as. But we are all those things. We're in a bit of a predicament. When we're running life by the agenda only of that egoic, self-cherishing thing, we have to hide away three quarters of who we are in our minds to present the appropriate shop window that everyone else won't reject and will we'll approve of. That's not a recipe for authenticity. It's the opposite of intimacy. Mm. It's the opposite. Of, and I'm all about connection and intimacy. I think that's what he, being a human is all about, is connection. Like Dr. Gabor Mate, the trauma and addiction expert, says the opposite of addiction is connection. Safety isn't the absence of threat. It's the presence of connection. Truly, truly believe that. And I want that connection. I want that intimacy. The most fulfilling, happy, joyful, enriching parts of being a human is when I'm connecting deeply with you, with my kids, with life, with myself, with nature. Connection. I want us to inch by inch, not suddenly rip off all the masks and go, here are my nipples. I'm not saying it's zero to 100, but just little by little share, oh, I felt vulnerable this morning. For some people, that would be the most massive, yeah, massive It's a step. massive thing even to say that, isn't it? Just to, to even say I, I felt vulnerable this morning would be yeah. a huge step. Or just to say, you know, I've been feeling depressed recently or I've been, you know, everyone wants to say, fine, you know, so that, fine, fine. And it's superficial and it's lonely. Do you think everybody is called to become authentic? From the small percentage of the planet I've seen, people seem to thrive more with connection and authenticity than without it. I can say that. Mm. 
But I don't know. There's 7 billion different individual experiments going on on this planet, 7 billion different ones, including thieves, murderers, rapists, things I would never do. You know, like there are people who just like are living an agenda that I just don't understand. There could be a huge amount of people who've come to Earth to be like, oh, I'm going to go down and experience total lack of connection. See what that's like. You know, like who knows? Who knows? Not all of them fit with our lovely fluffy version. I'm just really curious as well how you talk about the importance of play. It's just more efficient. When people are laughing, they're more relaxed. They're more open. They're more quick to laugh at themselves rather than hide themselves. So that's why the the stand-up comedians are the prophets of our age, because they get everyone to laugh at themselves. You know, Michael McIntyre, as mainstream as he is, he jokes about driving on a Friday evening and people overtaking. Everyone has that, you know, like, and but no one talks about it. So we're all laughing. God, I'm so up. Or the man draw. He does that great skit about the man draw full of keys and for, for garden doors that are properties we don't live at anymore and old currency that we don't, you know, like he talks about so many universal things that no one ever talks about, but everyone can laugh at themselves with. And laughing at ourselves is the first step to healing. Because you're you're acknowledging, oh, yeah, I'm like that too. And the moment you go, oh, yeah, I'm like that too, rather than no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, which is, you know, often how this more spiritual thing is. When you can laugh, you go, God, I'm such a mess. Oh, you're a mess too. And we can laugh about it together. Suddenly we all have permission to enter territory of immense healing. When people are you know, laughing about that we've all got a radio station of all our protection and all our strategy and all our self-cherishing going on our head, when we talk about it in a fun way like that, everyone can go, oh, yeah, my DJs are trying to tell me that I'm going to have an argument with my boss later. Suddenly yeah. it becomes like a game rather than let's meditate and observe our thoughts, let them pass like space between the breath. Off, you know, like it suddenly feels like a ball ache. <laughs> it just, I think it just puts more pressure on us actually to do something really oh. well because it's spiritual. If you're sitting there, you know, not meditating because your mind's racing, you know, it's that, oh, I, I'm not doing it right. So I'm useless. I'm not a spiritual yeah. person, but I pretend I am. And that's why I love teachers like Ram Das, Pema Chodron. They use their own melodrama and therefore you go, oh, I'm like that too. And we all feel included. I noticed that you really connect with Chiron, which to me means the wounded healer. So Chiron is the wounded healer. And all of us people who are sort of trying to go out the world and help people and teach things or offer our offerings, a lot of the reason we do that is because we've been ourselves sent down into the depths. Some people get sent down in the depths and never come back. But some people get sent down in the depths and very luckily met someone that helped them or read the right book or just by some random who knows what came back with a jewel in their hand that they can share with other people and they can have a lot of empathy for other people. Like I had decades of panic attacks, for example, really extreme ones, vomiting, diarrhea, shaking. I was really debilitated by them day after day after day to the point where I wanted to kill myself. Just I couldn't do this any day anymore. I just couldn't do it every day anymore. I just couldn't do it. But now... I'm really good with helping people with panic attacks because when they talk to me, they know they're talking to someone who knows what hell smells like. And all of us have been, you know, in our woundedness, if you look at it one way, could be looked at as empathy training. That is actually a way to help you help the kind of people that are going through what you used to go through or are still partly going through. You know, you don't have to be out the other end. That's what Chiron, the wounded healer, is all about, is like, our wounds often set us our superhero training for being a healer or a helper of some kind. And that, when I work with people one-on-one, I very much direct them towards, I know you're thinking and you're having a hard time now. 
a year from now, you're going to be sitting where I am saying this to someone else. Mm. I promise you. And they all are. As much as I love everything we just said, and I do, the shadow of that is I have fallen into the trap often of glorifying and glamorizing the wounded healer to the point where I'm a little bit too addicted to my melancholy. And so many of the albums I've made in the last years have been very sad, yearning, longing, as if it makes me a bit special, what I've been through. So more recently, as much as I want to carry on being a helper and a wounded healer in the, in the positive sense, I'm also making music now much more about having than longing. Mm. Like I don't want to keep promoting this yearning, longing, wounded archetype too much because then you just get more and more of that. But actually, I also want to have in parallel with a wounded healer, the lovely, joyful magician leaping around, having the fun, stuffing his face with cake, dancing under the summer skies. I think I want to incorporate the joyful, wild parts of life that don't necessarily fit with the wounded healer in the way that you might expect. And I think I overdid it a bit with the wounded healer and need to sort of really start letting myself have the cake a bit more and enjoy the now of joyfulness rather than this long journey of yearning. Don't you think that you have to go through that journey of yearning? Because in my own experience of going on my path it was the yearning that took me on the path I just wanted to know and it was the yearning that took me there yeah I hear you I mean I think yes but I'm not sure it has to be that linear you have to go through this one to get to that one it might be that you can just do them all at once what do you mean by that you can have the part of you that's yearning on a Tuesday and on the same Tuesday have the part of you that then dances wildly and eats the cake and they're all existing, coexisting together rather than first you do this, then you do that. But that's an expression of grief is one minute you're raging on the floor in despair and the next minute you can be laughing your head off. Yeah, it might be grief or it might be just coexisting all the different fragments and jigsaw yeah. pieces that are my life. I mean, this planet is the planet of limitation. It might be that we, it's like going to the Jaws exhibit at Universal Studios in Los Angeles. It's meant to be scary. Yes, you can mm. spend your whole time trying to dismantle the shark at the Jaws exhibit, but they're just going to mend it the next day. <laughs> you know, mm. people come for that ride to be scared by the shark. Mm. And maybe people come to Earth to have all this adversity and have all this disease and conflict. And, you know, maybe it's not the point that we're supposed to be creating a Shangri-La utopia. I agree with that. I think that this life is here to challenge us beyond what we can imagine to, to, to find out who we truly are for the purpose of which I have no idea. I've got my own take on that. But like you, I can't imagine what the point of a life of Shangri-La would be if we were all just having a lovely time. Because surely the, the challenge of being here, the challenge of as you say, finding your authenticity, that's what keeps us alive and just sailing near to the edge, isn't it? And yeah, that's for me that gives me meaning and purpose, actually. My answer to every one of your questions, truthfully, is I have no idea. Mm. I really don't know. One thing I know is that I love books. That's one of the things I'm pretty sure about. I look at my bookshelf and I feel a sense of peace. I know that I love my kids. I know that when they come and stay at my house, I'm always pleased that they are. I know that I love the feeling of sunshine and blue skies. I'm not against rain, but there's something about walking out and sunshine hitting me. I know I like that. I know that when I realise I've been helpful for somebody, that feels good. But really the big overall meaning of all of it, or the sort of like 
rules of if I can nail this down, then I'll, it's such a mystery because at different times in my life, I've been totally sure about different things, you know? But isn't that the glory of life is the fact we're constantly changing, constantly having our mind opened for some reason, or we read a sentence or there is those aha moments. It might be glory. It might be a pain in the ass. I don't know. Like, you know, sometimes I could do with a bit of permanence. I don't expect to get any, like my girlfriend's in Australia and I haven't seen her since July. And there's no specific finish line for when we'll be able to be in proximity again. You know, you have to question, you know, at some point, does the relationship survive? You know, how long do you leave it? I could do with some permanence of somebody saying, no, on the 1st of July, you'll definitely, definitely be able to see. I would love that permanence. Don't know if I'm going to get it. And isn't life really, ultimately, all about impermanence? Totally it is. You know, you bet, you know if you can't accept that, then you came yeah. to the wrong planet. But the reality underlying all of it is the fact that everything at some point is going to come to an end. And yeah. that's such a hard, bitter pill to swallow. I know. You know, I've been around a lot of death in my life, tons. Uh, all very sudden. Parental, best friends, all kinds of stuff like that. And I do get why the culture, the ego-based culture that we're in, of course, because the ego is the thing that definitely, definitely dies, maybe some other stuff carries on, we don't know. But one thing we do know is that the ego definitely stops. And if you think your whole life is the me, me, me ego, you will be terrified of death because it's the cessation of existence. So that's why Ramdas recommends, you know, see if you can connect to the other channels of soul and spirit because that carries on. And if you don't connect to those channels, then when death approaches, you're going to be terrified. But if you do connect to those channels, you're going to have a chance of looking at it like an onward adventure. That's how he talks about it in my new movie about him. What do you feel about it yourself? Sometimes when I think about death, I think it would be a relief. Like he says in the film, in Becoming Nobody, he says, um, Emmanuel, this disembodied spirit, says to him, he goes, I work a lot with dying people. What shall I tell them? And Emmanuel says, tell Ramdas, tell them dying is absolutely safe. And then he says, I love that line. Then he says, it's like taking off a tight shoe. I'd like to think of it like that. And, you know, like lots of times when I've really been in huge panic attack or depressive anxiety to the point where I just can't function, if I had a switch in the middle of my forehead and I could switch life off, I would do it. Not that I have thoughts of suicide. I've never, ever thought of an actual way of killing myself in my life. I've never had a suicidal thought like that. But I have had thoughts of if I had a switch in my head, I'd switch myself off now. This Mm. is too much. I'm too lonely or I'm too anxious or I'm too frightened. When you've been in that space, what's helped you to get out of it? Um, Being so exhausted that my body fell asleep after all the vomiting and sweating that just the body just had to shut down. It didn't have any more energy left. That's the the main one, but that's not the healthiest one. You know, I've got the biggest bag of tools ever, and sometimes they work. Self-soothing, getting into water, hot baths, salt baths, breathing techniques, qigong breathing, calling people that I know love me to talk me down, sometimes a therapist or a healing person. You know, there there are lots of things, a weighted blanket, make sure I'm hydrated, put my bare feet in nature, dance a lot, get the body moving. You know, we know what they all are. But I would say once it tips beyond a certain point, 
sometimes or quite often, I don't know, sometimes none of those tools even touch the sides. You have to accept that like sometimes you can catch it early enough with those tools and you can bring yourself back. Mm. Sometimes you're in a bin liner sliding down a snowy hill and there's no brakes. Even knowing that actually can be helpful. Sometimes when you know you've gone too far, you know, you know, sometimes the angels come and they save you, you know, just sometimes like I've had times where, where I've been in one of those situations and for some reason an angel has just come and touched me and I've just burst out laughing and it went away. You know, like they can leave as suddenly as they can appear. Often it can come from trying not to have it. Can't do anything about the pain, you know, that's coming. But if you can not resist it and go, all right, come on then, take me, and you don't resist it, or even more, you front it out. You go, come on then, pain, what have you got? Often it can't get its momentum going. It kind of needs your fear and resistance to what's going on. So the propeller can go and get going. And also really allowing yourself to release it, sobbing, screaming, crying. So those collapsing things for me have been backed up tears. When I first started having serious panic attacks and they'd take me to a Harley Street doctor because nobody knew what it was in those days. We're talking like 80s. They didn't have panic attacks then. I remember being in the waiting room and then the, the the woman who was like the receptionist was so sweet to me. She said, would you like a cup of tea? And she just had a particular kind energy. So I started crying 45 seconds into the crying. I didn't have a panic attack anymore. So I was like embarrassedly sort of crept out and left. Having a good cry is one of the best antidotes. This is when you strip away everybody's differences, isn't it? And the labels and goodness knows what. And actually no. really get down and dirty with the human condition, is, which is painful. And it's also joyful and all the other lovely things. But it's also, it comes with pain attached. And actually, if we accept that, I think it makes life easier. We're in such a comfort-addicted culture that most people like think every pain means something's wrong. And often that pain, because let's call it one day, we call it grief. It's so loaded with the word grief and all the movies that have had people in grief and our mother's grief and crying at funerals. And, you know, it's so loaded. I have a process which we call schlumpf, which is when we're feeling a negative emotion, we, we say, oh, I'm feeling schlumpf. And schlumpf doesn't have any meanings associated with it. It's just this feeling today. And it's much easier to deal with pain when you when you call it, ah, oh, I'm feeling wugahumftamuf. There was a great line my therapist said to me when I was talking about the pain of breakup and the pain of loneliness. And he just went, yeah, how human. You're like, how human of me? I'm feeling blue today. Okay. Yeah. yeah, not making yourself wrong. Is there anything you'd like to say to anybody out there, Jamie, about the changes that are happening in the planet and how they can help themselves go through, or we're all going through chaos and a lot of fear to do with that. Or One, have an internal life. Be willing to feel yourself on the inside, not always be externally focused. Have a different time, at least once in the day, even if it's for three minutes, stop what you're doing and just put your hand on your heart and just notice how you're feeling on the inside and say hello. But the, the main tip I, I, I want for the whole planet and, and I recommend for everyone as a starting point is really, really, really watch, observe your self-talk and see if you can treat yourself how you would treat everyone else. Like don't talk to yourself in an exasperated tone of voice, in an insulting tone of voice, in a disempowered tone of voice, in a giving up tone of voice. See if you can notice your self-talk 
and see if you can just one tiny millimeter make it a tiny bit more encouraging. If that one thing changed, I think the planet would be transformed. Jamie Catto, a wizard for our time. If you want to find out more about Jamie, go to his website, jamiecatto.com. Links to all my guests can be found on my website, suebrain.co.uk, and that's suebrain, B-R-A-Y-N-E.co.uk. The perfect wizardess to follow Jamie is Clara Apollo. Something happens with time when we let ourselves land and expand. She's a lifelong student and teacher of Qigong and is the creator and host of Qi Time TV, where she interviews influential spiritual teachers and thinkers of our time. You've been listening to Embracing Your Mortality and I look forward to you joining me again. In the meantime, here's to all of us living more consciously for a better world. The Embracing Your Mortality podcast was researched and recorded by Sue Brain and produced and edited by the Podcast Den.